Good morning to you in Maranatha. Our God, our Lord comes. How exciting that truth, the reality of that very fact is. We can look forward this coming week knowing that we serve a risen Savior, no, knowing that we serve a Savior who is coming again. And it's with excitement that we can come together and worship. We can walk out these doors knowing we're going into the mission field and that we can serve the entire, entire week, serve a risen Savior. Well, this morning, I want us to continue with our study of Christ of the book. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. This week, uh, this morning, I want us to look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as is Ezra, Ezra uh, is restorer. Christ of the book, in the book of Nehemiah, he is the restorer. The story of Nehemiah, the story of Esther, are about they're the story of restoration and God's promises fulfilled to those who went into captivity. The Lord told them, I'm going to bring you back to your land. And sure enough, that occurred. Nehemiah, uh, Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 is where God promises that he's going to return those captives back, back to Judah. Back to the city. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. This promise was to the nation of Israel, to Judah, who were taken into captivity. They'd gone into captivity because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of their rebellion, because they had other gods that they worshipped. Idol worship had become such an important part of the nation of Israel who had already gone into Syrian captivity and now the southern kingdom, Judah, that went into Babylonian captivity. Look at 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36, which is describing pretty much the same time period. Chronicles chapter 36. 36, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah, that's what we just read, might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him a house, a temple, in Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all of his people. And the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. So the story of Jeremiah 
and the, uh, the story of Nehemiah and the story of, of Ezra are all about King Darius, first of all, letting Nehemiah go back to rebuild the walls and the city. And it's also, Ezra is all about Cyrus allowing Ezra and thousands to go back to rebuild, rebuild the temple. Nehemiah is such an important book as to the fixing of dates. You can take the book of Nehemiah and you see the fixing of dates. It, it gives us a, a time period and where these different kings and these different things took place. Nehemiah was a, a, a nobleman. Uh, he was one of the, the prince of Judah. And he goes back in order to Gets, he's allowed to go back to rebuild the, the walls and the city. Ezra is a priest. 28 years later, and I know some of your Bibles, some, some theologians, some commentaries have Ezra going back first. I don't see that. What I do see is Nehemiah going back to restore the walls and the city in preparation for a huge number of those that are going into captivity to come back and to rebuild the temple. The thing to understand is when they go back to build the walls and the city and the temple, there is so much opposition. There is so much opposition by those Gentiles and by those that have sort of creeped in. When God's people were taken out, there were those who came in and set up shop there at the time. But Nehemiah, he concentrates on the walls and the protection of the city. Ezra being a priest, coming in with Zerubbabel, they focus on the temple itself. Nehemiah, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah gets permission and I'm going to tell you in just a second why this is such an important, important date. Such an important time for us to remember. But in Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah asked those who he talks to that have come from, from Judah. There's a, a group that have come from Judah to uh, Babylon. And he says, what, what's going on? What, what's, what's happening there? How, how are the, those that remain? How, what's the condition is the city? And basically, he finds out that the city is in heaps, that the wall is broken down, that the houses are destroyed, that the people are famished, that the situation is dire in Jerusalem. And that affects him greatly. So much so that that Darius or Artaxerxes or Hazarus here, uh, this, this king who is married to Esther, by this time all that we read about and studied in Esther has taken place. Esther is sitting on the throne. She's the queen here that Nehemiah talks about. And so the, the, the king, he sees Nehemiah just being down in the dumps, and he wants to know, What's going on? How come you're in such a bad way? Because he didn't want his cupbearer, he didn't want his wine taster to be in a bad mood. 
because he might not swallow. And if he didn't swallow, he's not going to know if somebody's trying to poison him. And that's what Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was his wine taster. Somebody give the king something to eat or drink, it was Nehemiah that would taste it first. So you wanted him to be happy. You didn't want him acting sick or acting as if there's something might be wrong with him. And so Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that's Darius, that's Esther's husband, Cyrus, the one we just read about, says that, Artaxerxes, the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and I gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. I, I'm sure he was thinking, is something wrong with this guy? Do I need some? You want to come taste this? I don't know. Therefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing that thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou Make request. What's your request, Nehemiah? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant had found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I might build it. Build Jerusalem, the city, back up. Moreover, and, and the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, that's, that's Esther, for how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I sent him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So Nehemiah receives permission from the king to go back and rebuild the city and rebuild the walls. Why is that important? As we study Christ of the book, and here in Nehemiah, just as in Ezra, Christ Jesus is the restorer. He is the great restorer. Look at Daniel chapter 9. I know we've been, we talked about this yesterday at the picnic. We talked about a little bit about it at Sunday school. You may say, Pastor Rick, you are... You are really into this particular scripture. I'm telling you folks, I think this scripture is such an important aspect of right division and knowing what was to come and knowing what's coming. But look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. I, if I sound obsessed, it's only because this is just so good for us to understand. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks or 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression 
and to make an end of sins. Hallelujah. You're talking about good news. This is good news. To make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity 490 years. That's not a very long time when you really think about how long the world's been going on, a little less than 10,000 years. But 490 years, that's good news, as Daniel is saying, that 490 years, but 490 years from when? See, that's an important question. To bring in everlasting righteousness and to anoint the most holy? Now, therefore, and understand, I think God's talking to us all here, now, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, that's 49 years, and threescore and two weeks, that's 434 years. So 434 and 49 makes 483, and then the Messiah is to be cut off. By the way, uh, somebody asked me, they said, well, what's that, uh, why is it in two separate, why didn't he just say 483 years? Why didn't he just give that? Why is it separate? Was there something important to happen after this, uh, after seven weeks, you know, and each week is seven years, so seven times seven is 49. So was there something significant supposed to happen? Why is there a division? Absolutely. After the end of that 49 weeks, guess what dedication they had after they go back? The temple. The temple dedication. Folks, that is so important in understanding God's timeline and for God to say, I'm going to show you what's happening. And he just lays it out there for them. So God here in Daniel chapter 9, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, until the transgression is no more, till the, uh, the kingdom, basically, where Christ is ruling and reigning, that thousand-year period, it's going to be uh, 490 years from the going forth of this commandment. That's why that is so important. So from that, from Nehemiah, getting permission to go and rebuild, and him leaving to rebuild, God's promise is from that date, 490 years later, you read about what Daniel says is going to happen. It's going to be the transgressions lifted. The, no more sin. There, it's going to be great time. The millennial kingdom. 483 years before until the Messiah is cut off, the Messiah is killed. Then you add seven years to that 483. At the end of that seven years, that's when it's going to be glorious. That's when that, all of that, those promises of God are going to take place. Did God blow it? Did God miss it? Because we know it's been longer than 490 years. But something did happen. God in His mercy, in His grace, in His great love, revealed a mystery to that chief of sinners concerning this present dispensation until the time of the Gentiles be come in. This period of time, the church age that we enjoy, where salvation is by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Over 2,000 years, God saved the chief of sinners. He revealed to him something that had been hid in him. Yes, God said in 490 years, this was going to happen. 
concerning the millennial kingdom and his promises. But it didn't happen. What happened was not the tribulation, was not the millennial kingdom yet, but his amazing grace so that you and I can be saved. Salvation was of the Jews, as we learned about in Sunday school, but the Jews says, we'll not have this man to reign over us. He came into his own and his own received him not. And instead of God saying, that's it, I'm done with you, God in his infinite grace and mercy, he saves, he saves. But that's not what we're talking about today. Well, we, we do want to talk about the fact that he saves, because he absolutely does. And then 28 years after Nehemiah goes back, Ezra comes and he starts rebuilding the city. Nehemiah and Ezra are all about God's promises of restoration being realized. Nehemiah about the reconstruction of the wall in the first seven, ver uh, first seven chapters. In chapters 8 through 12, it's all about the, uh, the restoration of the people. And that's where Ezra comes in and has his influence. As a matter of fact, for a long time, the book of Nehemiah and Ezra were just considered one book. One book. Because they contain so much of the same, the same thing. As a matter of fact, it's during, in Nehemiah, chapters 8 through 12, is when uh, Haggai comes on the scene and starts prophesying. It's when Zechariah comes on the scene and starts prophesying. And a little bit later, it's Malachi who comes on. Haggai comes in and he says, Why aren't you working on the temple? Start working on the temple. You, you're not doing what God sent you back to do. And Haggai lambasts them for their laziness, for them coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse not to serve and do what God has sent them back to do. Zechariah comes back, and he encourages them to do the same, but he encourages them with truth concerning the Messiah. Listen, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. This is what it's going to be like. He talked about how all the nations of the earth are going to come against Jerusalem. There's going to be a difficult time. But there's coming a time when eight, eight Jews are going to come, or eight Gentiles are going to come. And he's telling the people of, of Judah, there's going to be a time when, when uh, eight Gentiles are going to come and grab the skirt of one Jew and say, tell us about your God. Tell us about your God. So Zechariah is prophesying, encouraging them during this last part of Nehemiah, the last part of Ezra, to get the temple built. Malachi comes along, and he rebukes them for their sin. Malachi comes back and says, hey, wait a minute. You guys are falling right back into the same sin that got you taken into captivity to begin with. He rebukes them for their sin, but he also tells them something else special. He said... There's going to be a forerunner to the Messiah. And you're going to recognize that it's time for the Messiah, not just based on that 483 years, that 490 years, if you will, that Daniel had prophesied, but there's going to be a forerunner. There's going to be someone that God's going to send. He's going to send Elijah. And Christ says concerning John the Baptist, this is Elijah, but Israel, if, if you'll hear it, this John the Baptist is Elijah. He talked about John the Baptist coming. All of that is part of Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and we'll get there eventually. 
But Judah, back in the land, the, the, they were just not wanting to build the walls or not build the city, not build the temple, just excuse after excuse to get it done. And even with all of God's promises that you're going to build these walls, you're going to build this city, you're going to build my temple, there was unbelievable opposition. And you know what, folks? Anytime you want to serve God, there will be opposition. Satan's tactics do not change. And he always has his minions. He always has his allies. He always has those who are willing to take up his cause. Because I guarantee you, Satan, our enemy, their enemy, understood what all was at stake with going back and rebuilding the walls. And he, the walls were going to be rebuilt then the city was going to be rebuilt, then the temple was to be rebuilt for the glory of God. And as soon as Nehemiah gets there, he starts doing a tour. and It's so hostile that he has to go out at night, and he hasn't even told people why he's there yet because he's afraid of what their reaction might be. So he goes in the middle of the night, and he, he goes and he looks at the walls, and they are demolished they're in pieces it's in rubble oh how are we going to rebuild this how are we going to do this and they could start complaining dorothy and they did they could say god i i can't rebuild these walls but you know what god did he raised them up so they did it in 52 days in 52 days they went from a half wall all the way up to a full wall. And do you know what the Gentiles and those who have slithered into that area, do you know that that was a testimony? That when they saw that happen, when they realized these, these Jews didn't do it, it, it must have been God. And you know what? That's what God intended all along. Let me work through you. Let me do this through you. Let me be a testimony to all the world of how powerful, how mighty, how righteous, how godly I am. And I want to do it through you. That's, that was the message of Nehemiah. That's what was going on here at this place. You need to know that the enemy, Satan, hates God's people, hates you. And by the way, he has good reason to hate you, the church, because God's word tells us in Romans 16, you're going to crush his head. You're going to God is going to use you to crush his head. I'd hate you too if somebody said you were going to crush my head. That God is going to crush Satan's head through you, the church, the body of Christ. And personally, I believe that happens when we are raptured up. That that crush, that usurp we're going to take up our position in the heavenlies and there's no place more left for Satan and he has to skedaddle. Because the church takes up its place. That's coming. But, as a, but until then, Satan helps you, and there's all, he hates you, and there, did I say help? Satan hates you, not helps you. 
He hates you, not helps you. He's your enemy. He hates the work of God. He hates the work of God's people. And there will always be opposition. And as we go through Nehemiah, as we go through Esther, we see God's promise of the restoration. He is the great restorer. But we also see the world's attitude toward the work and purpose of God. Regardless of the dispensation, regardless of the time period, there are seven things that you can expect the world to do when it comes to God's work among his people. And we have all seven of them in the book of Nehemiah. Quickly, you can expect Satan and his minions to laugh at God's people and the work that they're doing. Look at Nehemiah 2.19. I'll start with 2.17. You can expect Satan and his minions, you can expect the world to hate you and to laugh. Verse 17, Nehemiah 2. Then said I unto them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, and also the king's word that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. This is the first time he'd said anything to them about it. But look at, excuse me, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Hornite, and Jabiah, the servant, the Amorite, and Geshem, the Arabian, heard it, they laughed. They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? They laughed at them. You can't do that. You, you are silly. You are ridiculous. I'm here to tell you, church, the world hates you. The world hates you. Look at John chapter 15. Don't take my word for it. Take the Lord Jesus. Look at John chapter 15, verse 19. Verse 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, when I say world, I'm not talking about God's creation. And Man, there are some beautiful spots in this world. If you don't believe it, just follow me back to Herman, Missouri. Herman is a pretty... I, I, there are so many pretty places in this world. It's not talking about God's creation. It's talking about the system, this rebellious, worldly system against God, against this creator. Remember, God, Satan is the god of this world. Satan is the prince and power of the air. That, why is there so, much, so many problems? People are always saying, well, why does God allow this and that? It is Satan. Satan is the god of this world, little g. He's the prince and power of the air. The curse was pronounced by God, but this is Satan's domain. He's not in hell. That is the last place Satan wants to go. And he is fighting to stay out of hell. But I've got news for him. It was prepared for him and his angels. And he's going. 
But the world's going to... The, the world is on his side. When he offered Christ the kingdoms of the world, the reason he had the authority to offer Christ the kingdoms of the world is because they belong to him. So that's what it's talking about, this world. Uh, look, at, look at John 17, verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. But look at Second John. I think it's interesting that John is the one that really pushes this truth that we need to understand. Look at First John chapter 5. Uh, 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2. John chapter 2. First John. First John chapter 2, verse 12. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The bottom line is the world's going to hate you, so don't be surprised when the world comes against you. And folks, things are heating up. I don't have to tell you that because you watch the news. You know that. As a matter of fact, how many of you have seen, not seen the new Disney cartoon, but have heard about it? How many of you? It's called Little Demon. How many of you have heard anything about Little Demon? It is the most satanic cartoon animated TV series that you can imagine. I even hesitate to say anything to you about it. Do not let your kids watch it. Oh, by the way, don't you watch it. But Disney has come up with this storyline of this little girl whose mother was impregnated by Satan, I kid you not, this little girl turns out to be the Antichrist, and the devil is disappointed because he thought he had a son. Well, God has a son. He has a daughter. And the whole story is built around that demonic activity. He takes her into hell. He shows her all the glorious things that she's going to get. People, it is so perverted... It is so evil, and the world applauds it. It's coming out on FX, I guess, or FXX, I don't know, one of those. It's for adults, but adults will still let their kids watch this garbage. And for you to say, and I've seen it happen on Facebook, if people are sign, saying, sign this position, a petition. We cannot let Disney get away with this. We need to take a stand against this. It's so demonic. It is so twisted. And the world goes, you're so silly. You, you just, that is, don't be ridiculous. Either that or, well, these adults, they, it's for adults, and they're entitled to watch whatever they want to watch. It doesn't mean I can't stand against it. It doesn't mean that I can't say this is wrong in the sight of God. It's evil. And as for me and my house, we're going to be opposed to something like that. That's, that's what God expects His people to do. But not only, do you know what else happened this week? Talk about how the world laughs at you. 
And don't think you have any pull. You have no influence. The Biden administration just named, let me get this right, a, a White House national monkeypox response deputy coordinator. I mean, if you know what monkeypox is, it's uh, their newest disease that spread through homosexual behavior, by the way. Only way it spread. But boy, they want to make a big thing about it. But he appointed this, and I can't even pronounce his last name. His first name is Dimitri. Daskalikis or something like that. He is a gay Satanist. Proudly dis displaying all of his satanic emblems, tattoos on his body. In the Biden administration, they appoint him. And the world that hates you, that agrees with that, applauds. And the church goes, oh my, isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? And we don't do anything about it. So the world laughs. They scorn. Matter of fact, I... I was going to go to Twitter and Facebook and pull up a whole bunch of things that the world says about, about the church and about Christians and about what you believe. But it, it, it was just so, I don't know what the word is. It, was so, it just grieved me so much that I didn't want to share it with you. I didn't want to do that. But to tell you that if, when you come across that, when you come across those that talk about your relationship with a God who loves you, who provided salvation, who died on a cross, who shed his precious blood, who went through all the stuff that he went through, that he is just your imaginary friend. When they call him things like that, when they talk about the fact that, that you have a that Christianity is a mental illness, when they talk about, this is true, religious trauma syndrome. That's what you have, religious trauma syndrome. Amen. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, it's, it's bad. Except it's not religious. It has to do with a relationship with the true and living God that we have. So not only do they laugh and they scorn, kind of the same thing, they ridicule. They ridicule and mock, and they make fun of you. Look at verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we had builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation, and he mocked the Jews. One of them look down to verse three. Now, when to buy, and that's what once you get started, they're going to laugh at you when you say this is what we're going to do. Then you get started, and then they start mocking and ridiculing, ridiculing, ridiculing you. Verse three, chapter four. Then Tobiah the Amorite was by him and said, "Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall." Why that? That is the puniest excuse for a wall I've ever seen. Why, even if a dog goes up, he's going to be able to get through it. Look at the work. It's shoddy. Look at the work. It's 
Those Jews don't know how to build very well. But boy, with a finished product, as God blesses, as God strengthens them, even they are going to have to step back and go, wow, it's a wall. So they're laughing, they're ridicule, ridiculing. It's going to change. But they also, real quick, their opposition turns into physical threats. Look at 4-7. Laughing didn't stop them. Ridicule didn't stop them. Verse 7, But it came to pass that when Salabat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Amorites and the Ashdorites heard that the wall of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, they were angry and conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God, and we set a watch against them day and night because of them. So laughing didn't stop them. Ridicule didn't stop them. Let's, let's threaten them. Let's take action against them. And you know what these folks did? We're not going to get through this We'll add Nehemiah and Ezra together next week because there's still some other things, this opposition. But Nehemiah and the people came together and they prayed. They turned it over to God. But that's not all they did. Boy, what a lesson in prayer this is. They didn't just stand around and hold hands and said, Lord, we're praying for our wall. We're praying for our safety. They prayed and then they said, grab your weapons. You you work, you stand guard. Let's prepare for this onslaught. They took the enemy seriously, and they prepared for what might have happened. And you know what the enemy did? Okay, maybe we don't want to be as feisty as we thought we should be. The rest of Nehemiah talks about how there's opposition through discouragement. Oh, and that's why I want to stop here, because I think it's so important that we understand what discouragement can do to God's people. See, the world's laughing, the world ridicules, the world attacks, but you know where the main stoppage came? You know where the, 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 the main trouble was? Within their own circle of discouragement, and they're complaining they started looking at the material. They started looking at what they had to work with. We can't do that. Somebody needed to step in and say, with God, all things are possible. And fortunately, that's exactly what's going to happen. But the most important aspect of all this takes place in Nehemiah 8. And we're going to get there next week as we look to see what God's people did after the walls were built and they started working on the city and the people came together and they stood together and they read God's word and they prayed and they sought God's will and purpose for their lives they gave him the glory and everyone came together and in unison in recognizing the hand of God working and there was nothing they were fearing and that's just the way it is with God's people when we understand who is in charge. Let's pray. Father, 
we come before you and how thankful we are for your word. We thank you for that it is alive. We thank you that it, it moves us to action. It moves us to conviction. Father, your word moves us to realize that we need you. And how we thank you for your word. May we be students of your word. And Father, how thankful I am that you tell people the loss, what they must do in order to have that perfect relationship with you, and that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Father, this morning I come before you, and I am thankful that it's not by works of righteousness that we've done that you save us. Father, it's not by the works, but it is by your amazing grace. Father, you've looked beyond our faults, you've seen our need, and you've met that need in the only way possible, and that is through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. Father, we rejoice in that salvation. Father, we come acknowledging that we can't do anything to merit that salvation, to gain that salvation. Father, there's nothing we can do to pacify you and your righteousness and your holiness. Oh, but Father, the work was accomplished on Calvary's cross as the Lord Jesus felt, poured out his precious blood. And Father, we rejoice that the Lord was delivered for our offenses, for our sins, but He was raised again for our justification. And Father, we thank You for His death, we thank You for His burial, and we thank You for His resurrection. And by faith, we believe that. And when we believe that, You do Your work to glorify, to sanctify, to justify, to make us righteous in Christ. Father, we thank you for that plan of salvation. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who never trusted you as Savior, that this will be the moment that by faith they believe. Father, we love you this morning. We thank you that you're in charge. We're thankful that you sit upon your throne. We're thankful that the tomb is empty, that we serve a risen Savior who's coming again. And Father, we're thankful that you allow us to be part of of that message of your redeeming grace. And may we faithfully proclaim it all the days of our lives till you either catch us away or through death. May we faithfully serve you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.